We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. What's good, everyone? You're tuned in to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. My name is Jason Taylor, host of Evidence of Design. We're also joined on the phone, good friends and co-hosts at Treadwell. Hey, what's up? And Yam Lawrence. Hey, that's my alternate name. We just played a really fun game where we had to decide what one letter we would remove from our first names and what would yours be john i would remove the n so it'd actually just be jasso you know how your parents might have told you like well back in my day before we had you know nintendos i would go out and play stickball or whatever we have the luxury of being able to tell tomorrow's youth that back in the pandemic we played games like these yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're certainly not going to have kids. Like we, there's there's no generation after ours. Not only would we, it would be a disservice to the planet to have more progeny, you know, based off of us. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, we have to sort of tackle climate change and and all that other stuff. So this is all theoretical, but fun games. But hey, it's not all fun and games. Look at that transition because we got to talk about some stuff on today's episode. It is. First airing on Saturday, February 6th, but we are pre-recording the show on Thursday, February 4th. So by the time you hear this episode, some things might have changed, but maybe not all that much because, you know, sometimes in evidence of design, we zoom out, look at broad stuff. Sometimes we zoom in, look at more local stuff. Today, we are zooming in. Normally on the show, we critique income and wealth inequality. We think there is way too much economic inequality in society. We investigate its causes, critique its effects, and propose what we can do to make a more just and equitable society. Past couple weeks, we've been looking at broad national themes. Around five episodes ago, we talked about a report being worked on locally by the Police Accountability Board and others uh, in regards to police reform. This was in response to an executive order by Governor Cuomo mandating basically all police departments or all communities across the state to come up with uh, reforms to their police departments in response to uh, what has now been at least thankfully widely acknowledged by most folks to be, you know, a need for restructured policing. So around five weeks ago, we covered that. On today's show, we're going to cover another recent development with the Rochester Police Department, and that has gotten uh, not just local news, but also captured nationally where the RPD handcuffed and peppered uh, and, and, you know, pepper sprayed a nine-year-old girl. It's disturbing video we're not gonna really watch or listen to it here just kind of want to throw that out there because it's it might be disturbing to some but we'll get to that later on in the show talking about uh, the rpd again 
But we're also going to look at the top stories locally in Rochester over the past year. I couldn't believe thinking back to some of the, our top stories here in our town and being like, wow, that seems like it was ages ago. And also, I forgot about this. I forgot about that. We're going to cover kind of the top stories in the past year in Rochester politics. Normally, we'd invite you to call in, but we can't because we're pre-recorded. So just hang tight with us. You can always correspond with us throughout the week at our uh, Radio EOD Gmail or on Facebook or Twitter at our Radio EOD handles. But before we get to any of what I just mentioned, we always got to throw a curveball in there, Matt and Mary. Let's start talking about COVID-19, this time from the angle of the University of Rochester Medical Center. There was reporting that came out earlier this week that the URMC gave, quote, preferential COVID-19 vaccine treatment to some of, uh, quote, wealthy connected uh, people to the University of Rochester. So uh, th there are allegations that the U of R invited at least 26 uh, so-called well-connected individuals to get vaccinated at the U of R. The U of R uh, is giving vaccines to its staff members. These uh, so-called well-connected individuals are not staff members at the U of R and in, 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 in cases that have been reported, they are wealthy donors or on the board of trustees, but they are not staff members and therefore would not fit into the U of R policy to be eligible to get vaccinated. Uh, apparently uh, emails were sent to these individuals by the U of, one of the U of R's uh, financial uh, money raisers. <laughs> you know, colleges have entire departments to raise money by reaching out to people. Uh, well, apparently they were reached out to through those departments or departments and invited to apply to get a vaccine. <clears throat> so in effect, this is giving preferential treatment to wealthy, well-connected people to the U of R bypassing policy. Matt, Mary, did you, did you hear about this story? Um, I did. And I also want to add that many of the staff members and people who are teaching at the U of R have not actually been able to receive vaccinations from the U of R at all and haven't gotten this kind of, you know, reach outreach of saying, we have these vaccines available, come get them and have in fact been encouraged to seek elsewhere and to get the vaccines through New York State instead of through the university. So the idea of them reaching out to donors is unsurprising, you know, because it's a money-making institution. Uh, but it is really disappointing to know that they reached out with the knowledge that they could not provide the vaccinations to people who would actually be teaching. Yeah, it certainly is, you know, disappointing is... I think a, a generous way to, to put it and, and an accurate one though. Um, we know that supply of COVID-19 vaccine does not meet the demand and therefore not everyone who wants a vaccine is going to get one the moment they want it. Uh, Governor Cuomo at the state level has laid out various phases of people who can get vaccinated. Phase 1A was sort of all medical, you know, frontline medical workers. And then the, the, the most recent phase is phase 1B. This includes other so-called essential workers, pol uh, police officers, firefighters, teachers, university professors, uh, uh, folks like that. 
And of course, there's lots and lots of other folks who don't even qualify for getting the COVID-19 vaccine yet. Oh, I apologize. Yeah, phase 1B as well was also those age 65 or older, I believe. So that, that you know, that's a huge pool of people, regardless of profession, you know, the, the elderly. So that that's really big. Uh, so the idea is that you try to give the vaccine to those who need it the most. Um, who are most based- vulnerable. Yeah, who are most vulnerable. So based on either, you know, possibility of getting infected through so-called essential professions or those who are most elderly or in nursing homes. Ergo, those who are most vulnerable. Didn't, uh, Jason, didn't the URMC in its statement say that all of these donors that were vaccinated would have qualified under the existing sort of order they were all people who were either over the age of 65 or had some sort of immunocompromised uh system yeah that's interesting matt i think the u of r has tried to cover for itself at least in the reporting i've seen to say look these 26 people although they're not affiliated with the u of r as in they're not an employee and therefore under our policies would not be eligible to receive a vaccine because we're only according to our own policies offering it to our own employees uh you know uh, maybe these people weren't employees of the u of r but hey they were you know 65 years old or older and therefore uh what's the harm if if they get vaccinated. Now, it should be clear that I haven't seen specific reporting because the U of R declined to provide this information, whether or not any of those 26 people who were invited, you know, 26 at least that we know about, actually ended up getting vaccinated through the U of R. I'm not sure we know that at the point of this recording, but at least we know that they were invited to get vaccinated through this preferential system due to, well, let's be blunt about it, due to their money right? Due to their power and money and the U of R wants to keep having them donate money to the U of R. Because as Mary, you said, the U of R is a money making machine, as are so many other colleges and well, all actually aspects of our society. Yeah, this- I do just want to read a quick snippet from the from the press release from the, well, from Sarah Mangelsdorf, the president of the university's um, what, what she published, just because it's, it's kind of an interesting way of, uh, you know, using little language. And she says, we know that many of you are disappointed by this information, and rightly so. The notion of privileging some people over others to receive a potentially life-saving vaccine runs counter to our values. It undermines the hard work we are doing to support the health of everyone in our community during this pandemic. And I just am interested in the way that she talks about values (laughs) in general, because obviously they want to save people's lives, but they're already, you know, by not, by encouraging staff to teach in person when it's not safe, by encouraging people to come onto campus because they need the money from students living on campus, like their values are of making money. So offering a vaccine to people who give them money is actually very much in line with their values and not against it. Matt, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say um, more generally and sort of going off of what Mary just said, that when I was reading about this earlier this week, I sort of thought back to all the 
all the reporting that we've heard over the past year or so about how people in communities of color and uh, and also in um, impoverished communities, which which do overlap, of course, uh, are much more likely to uh, die or suffer severe illness because of COVID, and and also that these communities are also often being left behind when it comes to, or so far at least in terms of uh, receiving vaccinations. And the thing about that is, is that I think people see that and there's sort of like this context or, or worldview that's constructed that suggests that, you know, poor people, black people, Latinx people are being left behind uh, in this crisis. And the, the reality of course is no, these people are being left behind all the time, every day. And COVID is just another thing that's being piled on top of that. Yeah, because we live in a society where having all forms of capital, whether it's social capital, human capital, actual capital in terms of money and assets tends to get you farther in life. And uh, for many, many reasons, minorities in this nation do not have uh, access to the same amounts of capital than, uh, for the most part, white and older folks do. And uh, by the way, one of those reasons was institutionalized slavery for uh, for centuries in this country. You know, the, the United States, I, I know the United States didn't formally exist until 1776 or whatever around there. But, the, the, the you know, in terms of people being in what we now call the U.S., uh, the, the U.S. has had slaves longer than it has not had slaves. <laughs> you know, and I think people don't realize that, that we, we only haven't had slaves, at least formally, for the past 150 years, whereas the U.S. has at least been around for 500 years, you know, to, to some regard. So, um, and slavery has been here since, you know, at least 400 years. So it's, imp it's important to remember that. And in terms of, you know, Mary, you're saying how giving preferential treatment with vaccines maybe does or does not align with U of R's values. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the point of talking about the story, and this gets to what you just said here, Matt, too, is I'm not surprised about this, right? We shouldn't be surprised. This stuff happens all the time. Um, I'm sure I'm, 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 I'm sure it's happening with other institutions, whether it comes public or not, where those with more money and connections get access to resources. Because that's, that's how the system works. It's logical. Yes. It's a logical there have been system. other stories about that too. Yeah. Very recently about hospitals offering vaccines to their trustees. There are tons of stories that just, you know, you were just talking about the racial disparities, like white people are getting vaccines way more than anyone else at the right. moment. Um, so yeah, it, it's absolutely not a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. I should say too, that I was very lucky enough myself to get vaccinated yesterday i got my first shot of the moderna vaccine I, I was as someone who works in education i qualify under phase 1b of the aforementioned new york's plan and was just very lucky enough after trying many days to get in and i, I did receive my first shot and can tell you that um, i've only grown an extra arm and I can now see colors. I mean, I'm sorry, I can always see colors. That's not new. <laughs> I can now see sounds uh, and my shoe size has shrunk by half. But um, other than that, man, I feel great. And um, COVID ain't got nothing on me. I'm hey, kidding. You weren't much of a looker anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. I did, I did get vaccinated. Very thankful to that. And I, I do hope that um, we are able to get more supply in this country, of course. And I hope that for those who are comfortable enough to get the vaccine are able to do so in a timely fashion that uh, is based on some level of fairness and not towards simply those who have the most money or connections. That to me sounds pretty reasonable. Well, hey, we should remind folks that you're tuned in to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is evidence of design. We're talking this hour, looking locally at various political stories. Now we're going to transition to look at some of the top political stories in Rochester from just over the past year. Golly, there's a lot of them. We're going to end by talking about the most recent story of the Rochester Police Department handcuffing and pepper spraying a nine-year-old girl during a, uh, I guess, so-called routine domestic dispute call. I am still not sure exactly what the, the nature of the call was, but uh, and it ended up in a way that uh, clearly is, is, is not so great. And perhaps there's further evidence of the need to rethink how mental health is uh, cared for and responded to in this country and how law enforcement and our justice system could uh, change. So we're going to get there, but we have plenty of stories to begin with. And I actually want to start out by going back to the most recent, well, going back to the 2019 local elections, that feels like ages ago, whenever you talk about anything that's more than a week in our political lives. But we'll have to remember that back in 2019, there was perhaps a surprise turnout where uh, Adam Bello was elected to the Monroe, to be the Monroe County executive. He's a Democrat. It was the first Monroe County executive who's a Democrat and in a long time in Monroe County. And also the Democrats picked up two seats in the county legislature. There still ended up being the minority in the county legislature with 14 seats. Republicans maintained the majority with 15. Uh, so it, it was a big kind of year in Monroe County uh, because of because of those elections and who everyone decided to vote for in them and that Democrats got a lot more power. Coming out of that, though, does, did anyone remember the Cable Act? We actually did a show on this. I looked it up. It was like episode number 74 or something. We're now on episode 130. <laughs> so it, it was a while ago. Do you remember? I, uh, the cable I don't Act? remember what we were talking about five minutes ago. So, no, I don't remember <laughs> that episode at all. <laughs> The Cable Act was proposed by Republicans in the county legislature after the November results in the election came in in 2019. And they, uh, the Cable Act stood for checks and balances for legislative equality. You know, who cares about the title? But uh, ostensibly, it was to enhance the legislature's oversight and make it, you know, more balance of powers, balance the powers between the executive and the legislative. So it would essentially curtail the Monroe County uh, executive's authority to appoint people on his or her cabinet to pass and enact legislation to get funding to where it needs to go. It would really hamstring the executive branch in support of the legislative branch. I, I do now remember this, this because it, uh, it reminds me of what they tried to do in Wisconsin after Scott Walker was voted out of the office. Mm, tell us a little bit about that, Matt. Oh, I don't know. Well, remember, that, yeah, just you know, give a brief back. Scott, governor, I can't remember his name. 
Yeah, it was it Tony Evers? Scott Walker was voted out of office, and he like signed a bunch of last ditch like executive orders in order to uh, extremely curtail the powers of his office, the right. governor's, uh, in anticipation of being replaced by a Democrat. Totally. That indeed reporting on the Republicans' efforts here to pass the Cable Act in 2019 was uh, reportedly based off of some other more national Republican efforts, like the one you're mentioning, Matt, in, in Wisconsin with outgoing Governor Scott Walker, to effectively hamstring incoming Democratic uh, office holders. <laughs> so I, I want to play a, a brief clip that we actually played this way back in the episode when we covered the Cable Act. But oh man, this one's fun. Of uh, this will be the then and now, I believe, Republican Monroe County legislative president joe carbone i believe and also the his assistant marionetti uh, i believe his name is talking about uh why the cable act you know why they did the cable act why would why would they do something like that let's listen because we we want to it's our we were voted in as the majority the people kept us as the majority we can't lose our teeth we have to have some we have to have some power to govern. If we let the whole thing go, then why should we be in the majority? What about the appearance this is taking power away from the county? Executive? This is not a power grab. This is just one more level of uh, one more level of it's transparency. One more level of transparency. And it's creating the co-equal branches. If I can expand just on <laughs> what the president was saying. <laughs> This is just one more level of transparency in 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 the fight to 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 hold the radical left accountable. Dude, it, if you ever run for office, or if you're ever an office holder, pro tip: just say it's about transparency. If there's ever a controversy, just say it's about being transparent. And, and people will smile, nod their heads, and be like, yes, I support transparency. Who wouldn't support transparency? This is why this is why corporations hire PR teams, because these skin suits don't know how to talk to other people. <laughs> because, well, I, yeah, I mean, I think they do know how to talk to other people. It's just that what they're trying to, like, fundamentally what they're trying to pass or enact or legislate is so morally and intellectually reprehensible to the common good that to actually say it for what it is uh, is is sort of impossible, you know, politically impossible. So they have to twist themselves into pretzels to, to you know, make it seem uh, palatable. Or they don't even bother to do that, and they just come up with, like, banal platitudes and, and fake political winners like um, freedom, jobs, choice, and transparency <laughs> to get yeah. people on their side. <laughs> That, that that moment when that guy just offers up transparency while his his compatriot is stumbling <laughs> for an answer is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in like local politics. It's just like you yeah. might as well have just said it's about freedom. <laughs> totally, <laughs> he could have just said that actually. Oh yeah, like that's the point, right? Is substitute transparency with ever other meaningless political you know, word you the, want? What we like to call glittering generalities in ah. uh, propaganda talk. Love it, Mary. You can find out more about media literacy and propaganda by checking out our YouTube channel, Evidence of Design, because Mary did some great workshops on media literacy there.
thanks uh, also with our, of course, host, 100.9 FM, WXAR, and a local grassroots radio branch of that, Reclaiming the Narrative. Uh, you know, revisiting the Cable Act brought back so much trauma, and it's just so funny to uh, to go back to that. Thankfully, it didn't end up getting passed. But this next thing that we're going to talk about did end up passing by the Republicans. Oh, I'm sorry. So it's one really quick thing, and this ties into uh, what we're about to cover. So so why this got so much question, the Cable Act, all inside baseball, we're talking about local politics, who cares? Well, Republicans controlled the legislature for, you know, three decades in Monroe County. And the moment a Democratic county executive comes into power, they try to pass legislation that they said is good governance, no matter what. It's not about who holds office. It's just good governance. Uh, obviously, that's hypocritical, right? How you can't be generous. Like, it's not about being generous to say, yeah, that makes sense. Like why they would try to um, uh, restrict the power of the county executive when indeed the past county executives for decades have been Republicans. So it, it's just a power grab. It is what it, you know, and it's not about transparency. It's just a power grab. Republicans are just being skinless. Uh, anyways, this next thing that Republicans did pass, this was uh, right after the 2019 election. It was the prohibited harassment of a police officer, peace officer, or first responder in Monroe County. Do you remember this? This was the, uh, the, the police officer annoyance law that that criminalized anyone's action to quote annoy alarm or threaten an officer there was punishment from up to a year in jail and or a five thousand dollar fine i had totally forgotten the timeline on this and was absolutely astonished that it was pre-summer actually yep i remember there being actual police officers saying things like yeah, it seems a bit uh, redundant. <laughs> we are we already do that, right? We already we already arrest people for uh, annoying. Them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, or, or kill them. Well, dude, that that's so true because the funniest thing was like then police chief um, was it Laron Singletary? Was uh, yep. Yeah, that, then police chief Laron Singletary, even Mike Nazio, the the president of the Locust Club, like one of the most conservative police unions I've seen, our local police union, the Locust Club. Even they said like, "Oh, we don't actually need this, guys." <laughs> and so, the, like everyone universally, even police officers, ended up saying, "Yeah, please don't pass this. It's not like legal and enforceable." I mean, how are you? How can we? fine or arrest or threaten someone who quote annoys us you know <laughs> yeah also like if we want to talk like we probably don't want to go down this rabbit hole right now but if we want to talk about saving money for the county like putting people in jail for annoying a police officer would take so much taxpayer money to like yeah. house and feed them in prison that's crazy totally and obviously like the question is like what does it mean to annoy a police officer right i mean that could be if our justice system and policing is um tenuous as best right now imagine what it would be like if you could be arrested jailed and fined for quote annoying a police officer you know would that be uh if you're the one videotaping uh george floyd or daniel prude are you then arrested because you're annoying the officer? You know, I mean, it just, it's just this whole can of worms that even officers thankfully recognized and said, no, 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 we don't want that. Republicans anyways, though, they went ahead and passed it. The county, the Republican led uh, county legislature and then outgoing Monroe County executive Republican Cheryl Donolfo signed it into law. Thankfully it was repealed 
in April 2020. Yeah, it's a really good thing because of what comes next, actually. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't what know. I think you guys are being a little hard on it. I think like we it's really a shame that we don't get to watch like episodes of Judge Judy where people get fined a, a grand for uh, the crime of petty nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> we could just totally, you know, Donald Trump comes in, starts his own reality TV of, of Rochester police annoyance law. And just, there we go. We've got it all figured out. Folks, we're going to take a short break on evidence of design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We've been talking this hour about some local stories. First of all, covering the URMC, the University of Rochester Medical Center, which uh, uh, offered for non-U of R employees to essentially jump the line and get COVID-19 vaccines. These were people who were well, so-called well-connected to the U of R, meaning they gave the U of R a lot of money. And then we're going through just the last year plus a few months in Monroe County political history covering some of the top stories. We're going to end with the most recent story on the RPD handcuffing and pepper spraying a nine-year-old girl. And, and we're going to sort of trace the line up to that moment, starting with the Monroe, with the Monroe County Republicans trying to pass the Cable Act to restrict incoming Democratic County Executive Adam Bellows powers. And also then Monroe County Legislative Republicans passing a, a, a criminalizing so-called annoying police officers. We're going to get to more, including the long-standing fight of Monroe County Democrats over who should take over the commissioner of the uh, Monroe County Democratic election seat, of the, uh, the Board of Elections in Monroe County. We'll be right back after a short break on 100.9 FM WXIR. Hang on. That was Mulberry Leaves by Sestrugi. Matt, that band's all right. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Do you know who's in Sestrugi? No idea. Yeah. That's Matt's band. It's good stuff. They also do our intro and outro music. Let's get back to it, though, on Evidence of Design at 100.9 FM WXAR. Let's cover some more local stories from the past year in Monroe County politics. Do you folks remember all of the uh, articles and infighting among Democrats over who should take over the Board of Elections commissioner position? I remember that they split into separate caucuses, if I'm not mistaken. Could you call them caucuses? Yeah, why not? Indeed, those that split in the Monroe County Democrats exists still to this day along similar lines. It's so odd, and this is kind of why we're covering this, because I have found it nigh inscrutable to understand local politics. I just don't get it. You know, part of that is because 
local reporting is eviscerated in this country. In Rochester, we have the DNC, WXXI. The city newspaper is now run by WXXI. There's the minority reporter. You know, there, there, there's, there's a handful of news organizations that cover politics. And it's just like, it's, I, I just find it completely inscrutable. In this instance, the Board of Elections, as happens in most places, has two supposedly nonpartisan commissioners, one Republican, one Democrat. The Democrats had a vacancy in their uh, election commissionership for a long time. It was filled by Lasana Boost. She was an acting uh, commissioner. She was a favorite of Mayor Lovely Warren. And then when it came time to formally vote on and appoint uh, and approve uh, the next commissioner, Lasana Boost actually didn't want the job. She's like, no thanks. And so she withdrew from consideration. But Mayor Lovely Warren and then Democratic County Legislative Minority Leader Vince Felder, along with some other of a breakaway Democratic caucus, such as uh, Ernest Flagler Mitchell, among others, still threw their support beside, behind, besides Lasana Boos. Very confusing for a, a, a long time. The post was unfilled. There was bickering. Mind you, this was all happening in the midst of leading up to the 2020 general election. You know, the most important general election in generations. <laughs> the, not only oh, because of not only because who was on the ballot, but also because of the events around it. You know, COVID-19 is in full swing. We're doing absentee voting, early voting, uh, uh, you know, worried about catching the pandemic while you're going to vote. So, so in all of that, Democrats can't decide on who fills this sort of functionary political job. Ended up being that uh, Jackie Ortiz, she was a city council member. Uh, she ended up being voted on and appointed to the position but she wasn't recognized by Democratic majority leader in the county legislator, Vince Felder. He didn't recognize the appointment. He's like, this is illegitimate. We don't recognize Jackie Ortiz. We don't want her there. Even though she's a fellow Democrat and his, some of his Democratic fellow members, well, enough of them voted to appoint her. So a, a weird split going on in the Democratic Party, and it still continues to this day. I still don't quite know what's going on with that. What is it with this year and people not recognizing elections? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think Something fishy going on. If only... It's almost like our systems are broken. Mm. I wish we had the same sort of scrutiny and awareness to money you know how like people all of a sudden are realizing like you know I know we've been pretending that votes matter I just I don't know if I care to pretend that anymore you know we still sort of pretend money matters though and man if only we could recognize elections and not recognize money to some extent but we'll get there but hey, before we go on to uh, some other stories about the Monroe County Democrat infighting, we got to cover Daniel Prude. That uh, we all know, of course, the story where Daniel Prude, an unarmed black man uh, who came to Rochester, uh, he was killed last March by the RPD. The, the autopsy, the medical examiner said that he was killed in a setting of asphyxiation, in the setting of physical strength. That's a, a fancy way of saying he was uh, choked. choked to death by the RPD. 
And uh, despite that internal police investigation and the local police union, the Locust Club said the officers' actions were consistent with their training and therefore nothing was wrong. Well, they were wrong, actually, because a lot of things were wrong and that kicked off months and months of protests. Yeah, which certainly still continues to this day, not only locally, but nationally in response to the killing of George Floyd and and so many others unarmed, but even armed, you know, uh, black men and women in this country, because I, I thought that the point of the Second Amendment, if you want to go there from the conservative angle was like nothing wrong with being armed, you know, <laughs> to be armed all day. <laughs> and so, it, you know, whether you're armed or love unarmed, arms, loved arms, you know, I got three of them now because the vaccine, but, uh, you know, just like it. It's just so often with these stories, though, why we keep saying unarmed is because it's just so often that it's unarmed people of color being killed. And now this will, of course, connect back to the most recent story of the RPD handcuffing and pepper spraying a nine-year-old girl. And still major questions remain about the RPD and indeed even Mayor Lovely Warren's response to and knowledge of the events surrounding Daniel Prude's killing. And there are still many people calling for her resignation, if not outright changes, you know, substantive changes to policing in Rochester. So, so I've been, um, I got, a, I got a point, I got a take on this that I think uh, is a little fresh, perhaps. Ooh. Not something you hear every day. So we've all seen, we all saw how that that story made national headlines and everything. You know, uh, police officers pepper spray nine year old girl during a domestic house call. It reads like an onion article headline from like 2014. Um, so I've been watching, I've been watching a lot of samurai films lately. Um, and the samurai, uh, for those of you who didn't know, they had a method of saving face whenever they did something dishonorable. You know, they forgot to take their sandals off when they entered somebody's house or they accidentally sneezed on their Lord or something. Um, and, and that method of saving face was a form of ritual suicide called seppuku. Now, seppuku was a very painful way to die. It involved disemboweling yourself. Literally, uh, the samurai would stab himself with a sword and drag it across his abdomen before another samurai would cut off his head. And it was important that it was gruesome and horrible because it was a vehicle for reclaiming lost honor. Uh, the samurai had committed an offense it had to be atoned for with a painful death. Now, like our modern police, there was a cultural expectation for samurai to embrace certain virtues and values and set an example for the rest of society as a whole to model. And whenever there's a story like this where a police officer makes national headlines for brutalizing a black person, we don't usually see a lot of discussion on the left about the humiliation these officers must feel for shaming the uniform. Yeah, and the, and the consequences so often not had in the justice system where police officers time and time again get off from these incidents of, if not outright killing unarmed black people who did not pose uh, an imminent danger to their lives then you know at least hurting them or infringing them or dehumanizing them. Um, so often there are not consequences to be had. And police officers, when they, you know, it's a job, right? You, you go online, you say, oh, they're hiring to be a police officer. I'm going to apply. Here's my resume and cover letter. Great. They accepted that. Now I go to like the police academy and I train for less than a year. 
great. I passed the police academy. Now I'm a, you know, and I go through a bunch of other training. Now I'm a sworn officer. I wear a badge and I, I exist to so-called protect and serve. It's still a job. You know, you, you put on your badge and uniform and you, you do your job, but it's a very public job and with great power comes great responsibility. And um, I don't revel in the idea of punishing people. I don't, I don't revel in the idea of stripping people of their income in a society where income means life and death. <clears throat> but I do, Matt, think about what you're getting at in terms of like this larger cultural theme of humiliation or recompense for what the office should stand for or hold, you know, not even just the office of what it means to be a police officer, but, but the office of a public servant at large, you know, their police officers make money through taxpayers. We all pay for the police officers. Um, and also as a human being, we should do better. All of us, including myself and this radio show and, you know, you, the listener of modeling behavior that, uh, we would be proud of, you know, for, for our future generations and for each other. And we should treat other people the way we want to be treated. And that's not meant to be mushy, gushy, soft stuff. It's meant to say we lack adequate responses to these horrible events in society. Not only do they tend to not be adequately completed in our justice system, meaning police officers often are going unaccounted, you know, they're, they're not being held accountable at all in any manner uh, in, in the justice system through, through juries or, or internal investigations. Um, but even beyond that, there's no sort of, we don't see the people who've done these things. We get the same vapid political statements from leaders and it's just sort of, um, it's hard, you know, it's, 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 it's re-traumatizing every single time we see these things and we come to lose trust in each other and our institutions and we need some form of healing to, to get over this, right? And, and, and that healing could be um, doled out through the justice system as it currently stands. It could be people themselves taking on more public accountability for their actions, or it could be, I think this is what most people would get to, is structural reform of these systems that would allow so many of these problems to occur in the first place. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, the whole sort of rallying cry for the last year or so now nearly a year anyway, has been to abolish the police. And that that kind of like uh, idea, I think, cannot exist. It is completely anathema to a capitalist system. I mean, do you guys remember um, when a bunch of city council members for Minneapolis held like a, uh, a press conference where they vowed to defund the police and radically rethink policing in their city? I do. And then they kind and of backed away from that, right? They totally backed away from that just a few months later. And, and like all of the sort of there, there's there's so much um, there's been so much reporting on just sort of the resistance to any sort of real or, or, or substantive or revolutionary thinking when it comes to changing the way we uh, police in our society. And that's because, as many people have noted, the the institution of the police was created to protect property that's its main function and the uh, so long as we conceive 
have a conception of personal property in a capitalist system, there will be a need for police. And so uh, if we're not going to get rid of capitalism, we're probably not going to get rid of police. And I guess if we're stuck with capitalism and we're stuck with police, then I guess I put me in the pro punitive part of we should punish police officers who who do things like this. Yeah, just just to remind folks who tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM. WXIR in Rochester. I know we're not getting to some of the other top stories in, in Rochester, but that's fine. Let's keep covering the most recent story of the RPD handcuffing and pepper spraying a nine-year-old girl. Uh, Matt, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, no, I, I don't necessarily agree that we should be on the punitive side, I guess. So did you watch the video, uh, Matt or Mary, the it's around six minute video of the police cam of this incident? I didn't. Nor did I. Okay, so I I would you know it's it's certainly hard to watch as all these videos are. Um, I, I would recommend watching it because I I was struck. Let, let me just be honest here. You know I'm 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 biased against police violence, and so I I tend to be skeptical of policing as an institution because it uphold it. The, the, the fundamental role of police is the way I see it is to protect private property in, a, in an unjust capitalist system. And therefore, if police are protecting an unjust system, then they are proud of the problem. I'm not saying all police are bad. Indeed, I am I'm happy that we have um, a, a section of society that can take responsibility and executive force when we need it to uh, counteract um, things that are hopefully universally deemed problematic. However, you know, in watching the video uh, of the body cam that was released, it's like I still couldn't really figure out, and I'm sure this is out there in, in more of the public statements, and I'm sure there's people who are listening right now who know way more than I do, and I, and I should know more. But I, I'm still trying to figure out what the police were called to, to, the, to the victim's house to begin with. You know, apparently it was sort of a, a domestic call. There was some sort of, you know, strife going on. Uh, and so you, you hear about that's the reason why they're called there, but then the footage just starts with two police officers sort of holding the nine-year-old girl by each arm uh, and just sort of trying to wrestle her into the police car as she's screaming a hundred times throughout the video that she wants her father. And the police officers, you know, this doesn't look great. Uh, The optics are bad and it doesn't look, doesn't look fun. Uh, but the police officers did try to say, you know, please get in the car. At one time, when the when the young girl actually got into the police car, there is a, you know, there was two males kind of wrestling her into the car, and then a, a female police officer comes over. I believe she's the one who actually pepper sprayed her, but it, it's hard to tell. You know, she adopts a much different tone. She's very gentle with her and asking, you know, please, calm, you know, let's calm down. I, and and she she's the first one in this video who actually responds to the. Rep- repeated calls of the nine-year-old girl who just says, I want my dad. I want my dad. I want my dad. She's the first person in the scene of nine police officers there. So to actually say that I could hear at least, I will try to find your dad, right? She's the first one to say that. So it certainly would have been great if other police officers could have said something to that regard besides just saying, get in the car, calm down, stop it. You're acting like a child, you know, stuff like that. Not not very helpful, right? Um, But so I, I was struck by like, the at times efforts of humanity <laughs> and efforts of um, you know being calm and caring in some regard for this poor girl who's obviously struggling. Um, 
at the same time, so, so long story short, I was wondering like, what is, what is happening? Like, what is the goal of what is happening here? Cause again, this is without the context. Like I, I think the old saying that with every, if, if you have, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? The police are trained to just like, if someone's acting out, you need to separate them and get them in the back of a police car. You handcuff them, you get in the back of the car. And I think that that is what they saw the situation of like this girl needs to be controlled. And so we will handcuff her and put her in the back of our car. I, I was just wondering like, why is this happening at all? You know, what is the solution going to be here? And it just made me question the institution of policing in that regard. I'm just like wondering like what was supposed to be happening here? And I, I'm leaving watching that video and from the reports, recognizing that whatever was supposed to be happening wasn't. Well, question there too is, who do you expect to arrive when you call nine one one? Do you expect the police to arrive? Do you expect a social worker to come? Like having, I, I mean, that's obviously taking a different approach here, but that is one of the questions that has been posed so much by the defund movement. Uh, is who is responding to these nine one one calls, and how can we change that to make the response more appropriate to what's going on? Yeah, I. I I totally agree with you, Mary. And that's where I think we could do some structural reforms to better triage support and resources to our fellow human beings who need it. And, you know, I guess if you call 911 now, you're going to get an ambulance if it's a medical emergency. You're going to get a fire truck if it's a fire, but you're also going to get a police officer in that event. And then you're going to get a police officer for anything else. Right. I read in the, the uh, article you, you sent me, Jason, that the police were called because the girl was making threats uh, against the life of one of her parents and against her own life. You know, if somebody, if, if, if anyone is making those kinds of threats, you, you generally have to take them. You, you have to take them seriously. Not generally, you have to take them seriously, uh, especially if they're threatening themselves. And in, in that instance, who else can you call? Right. We have one emergency number. Totally. Um, and, I actually, I think you can call two one one for mental health crises. Really? Yeah. 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 The, to, to be fair, the, the Monroe County Legislature, I think, or the city, uh, or the mayor, the, the, there is some new um, crisis support hotline that sends social workers or mental health professionals out. It's like, I believe, brand new in Rochester. Again, other people know about this more than I do, uh, but that that I believe is sort of relatively brand new. But again, still calling 911, I think, for the day-to-day activities here, you're, you're going to get a police officer, to my knowledge. Anyways, we are drastically running out of time here on Evidence of Design at 100.9 FM WXIR. Um, I think one conclusion we can come to is don't pepper spray nine-year-olds. Certainly. Yeah. So, um, right. That's where we're going is to say that there are people proposing local, local leaders proposing to ban handcuffing minors and also banning the use of chemical irritants on minors. Certainly that seemed like gross, uh, abuse of power. Like, um, but we didn't get to some other stories here of, uh, mayor lovely Warren's response to city council member Malik Evans running against her and her sort of bizarre response against uh, a political challenger of, of her same party. We covered that a few episodes ago, nor did we get to the other very big story locally of county legislature, uh, Ernest Flagler Mitchell sending a unsolicited, uh, 
nude photo of a part of his body to a young 19-year-old woman. Uh, it's a long story. I'm sure if you are in Rochester following the news, you've seen that. And Flagler Mitchell is, of course, tied into all these other stories about the Democratic infighting with the over the Democratic Election Commissioner. Also, the, oh, we didn't even get to the 2021 budget and the last-minute amendments the county legislator put in about um, establishing a so-called slush fund. <laughs> so much was going on in local politics and continues. This is just over the last year really quite bizarre and to stay on top of it all is challenging hey we got to end our show here though 100.9 fm wxir thank you for tuning in you can always find our past episodes on youtube by searching for the evidence of design youtube channel and you can also get in touch with us on facebook and twitter at our radio eod handles i was your host jason taylor joined by my good friends and co-hosts matt treadwell along and mary lawrence be well until next time folks be well out there Be safe, all right? Take care, and bye-bye.